we're working through the book of Acts as we see how the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church. And we've read about signs and wonders. We've read about revival and conversions. And now we get to read about discipline and judgment. Just before Thanksgiving, isn't that nice? Nonetheless, as we learn from C.S. Lewis that... Although Aslan is good, he's not safe. And it's very much like that with the Spirit of God. He is good. But let's not think for a moment that he is safe. He cares too much about our transformation and our development as creatures to simply be safe. Now, why, why did they have to die? I mean, why did Ananias and Sapphira have to die? It wasn't Peter's doing. This is one of those situations where you may be looking at Peter going, what in the world was this guy up to? Don't shoot the messenger. Okay. As far as Peter is concerned, it wasn't Peter. This was God's doing. And to answer the question, we have to consider the broader context. We have to ask ourselves, why would Luke, who is a very careful recorder of history, why would Luke bring up again similar practices and habits that the New Testament church was involved in? Just two chapters after he brought it up, this whole idea of, um, of giving and sharing. Luke brought it up again for a very important reason. He wanted us to see the context of what's going on in the midst of a very troubling and disturbing circumstance where two people die instantly. The context is generosity. The context is all about generosity. And so what I want to talk to you today about is the generosity that God promotes and the generosity that God provides and then finally, the generosity that he promises, the generosity that God promotes among his people, the generosity that he provides to them and the generosity that he promises. Now, the generosity that God promotes is uh, it's very tangible in this passage. God's generosity was tangible in the early church. In verse 32 we find out that no one. Uh, no one said. That any of the things. That belonged to him. Uh, were his own. But that they had everything. In common. It's not that. It's not that every person. Discounted the idea of personal property. It's not. Nobody's opposed to personal property. That's not. What Christianity teaches, that no one's allowed to have personal property. It doesn't say that. It just says no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. The idea there is, is they did not regard their personal possessions possessively. Right? You see the difference. They did not regard what they owned and what they had personally possessively. Uh, they didn't hang on tightly to what they had, but they regarded their possessions very loosely as being available to others. And the effect is seen in verse 34. Luke tells us there was not a needy person among them. It's not that everybody became wealthy. It's not that everybody achieved middle class status. It simply says nobody was lacking. Everybody was supplied. Everybody was equipped. 
Everybody was content. Everybody had what they needed to be who God wanted them to be. Now, I'll bring it up again because we saw a similar passage at the end of Acts chapter 2 where people were sharing things with one another and taking care of one another like this and in a community-wide. And I'll say what I said a few weeks ago. It's not some forerunner of communism or socialism. It's not a state-mandated sharing, selling, purchasing, distributing proceeds from possessions. As far as we can tell, it's not even something that's mandated by the apostles. You see people bringing the proceeds of what they had to the apostles' feet, I think, because of accountability. And the apostles leading the community uh, were in a position of being able to dispense it and distribute it as needed. It's not some forerunner of socialism or communism where the state mandates uh, that, um, that property is shared and redistributed. Uh, no, it's, it's conditional. Notice what you see in verse 35. It's conditional based on specific needs because it says that, that the proceeds from land sold was distributed to anyone as he had need. See, their generosity here is the fruit of their unity. That word, having all things in common, that word common, the Greek word there has the same root as the word for fellowship. It means to share in your purpose and in your identity together. Their generosity came as a result of their unity. They were together in their identity. They were together in their purpose. And that's what encouraged them to be generous to one another. It's a beautiful reflection and fulfillment of the heart of God who told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 15, there will be no poor among you. God said to the Israelites, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. God said, especially to those who belong to you, to the faith community, you take care of one another. There's always going to be poor people among you, but you take care of your own poor. Uh, God's generosity was so great that he said to the ancient Israelites, even if a stranger or a sojourner or an alien or a traveler is amongst you, be kind to that person as well. Don't treat that person like a stranger, but especially to your brothers and sisters. Take care of the poor among you. You see a beautiful reflection of that. And one positive example, just one, is this guy Barnabas. His name was Joseph, but the apostles gave him a nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. We don't know why, but maybe it's because he was so generous that they gave him this nickname, son of encouragement. Apparently, he had some land. He was from Cyprus. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He sold some land that he owned. He, he took the full amount of the proceeds and, and he brought it to the church. And he said, you use this as people need it. And apparently there were many Barnabases. There, there were many people like Barnabas. And the result was there was not a needy person among them. Where does that kind of generosity come from? It's profound generosity. What do you think? Let me ask you a more general question. What causes people to be generous? Think of a person you know who has been generous to you, or maybe they're just known for their generosity, right? Maybe they have a nickname. Maybe people know they're just a freely giving, generous person. 
What do you think? What causes people to be generous? Do you have any ideas? Okay, compassion. Maybe they're compassionate and their compassion fuels their generosity. Yeah. They see the need that is in front of them. They're, they're responding to a need. Okay. Pay it forward. Yeah, what's that expression mean? Okay, they've been given to in the past and they desire to, to pay it forward, to be generous also. Kind of the idea of a, um, a reciprocating generosity maybe. Okay. The Spirit of God lives in them and so they are generous. Yeah, the, the Bible talks about uh, people who have God's Spirit, they, they become like God. <laughs> their, their priorities reflect God's priorities and so they become generous. What else? Yeah. Love, we're hearing words like compassion and love and what else? Love, it's interesting because, you know, the pay it forward concept works if you see that you've been blessed, right? (laughs) The compassion and the love, uh, they fuel that generosity because they have their eyes open and they see, right? Sometimes we're blessed and we we don't see it. So love and compassion are a vital component to that. What, were there a couple of other hands? What causes people to be generous? Yeah. Okay. Mm. They have to be willing to be self-sacrificing. They have to be willing to absorb a cost. To absorb the cost, yeah. Because doesn't it cost something to be generous? That's the whole point of being generous. It, it costs you something. Um, it, it, it's not generous to give something away that I really don't care about. Right. And Rachel, you kind of made that illustration just earlier with the children. Any other thoughts? What causes people to be generous? Okay, I want you to remember that. They recognize that they are not the sole reason for what they have to give away. Uh, it's interesting you say that because remember in verse 32, it said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Um, a lot of what we own legally is the result of us purchasing it. Okay, and yet there's that sense of, but I'm still not the cause of what I've bought with my own money that I earned. There's a greater cause. Uh, And I like that thought. Everything's been great. And we'll come back to a lot of what you've all said. Yeah, I I really think that a generous person is a thankful person. A generous person is a person who is thankful, who sees how she has been blessed, how he has been helped, and encouraged. And with a spirit that is much like the Holy Spirit of God reciprocates in like kindness. Christians are generous. Christians are called to be generous. I say that because you may think of a stingy Christian in your mind right now. <laughs> well, let's put that aside for a second. Christians, as Jesus designed, as the Holy Spirit designed, Christians are generous because God is generous. God has provided abundantly for his people 
It was Peter later in one of his letters, second Peter chapter one, who said this, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness to general living to holy living. Peter said he's provided it to us. He's provided all of it to us. Comprehending God's generosity to you makes you thankful. Comprehending it, seeing it, recognizing it makes you a thankful person. And once you're thankful, isn't this true? Once you're thankful, you become less possessive and more generous. Being mindful of God's generosity to you. And I really think that the letters in the New Testament prove that this is true and that this actually works and that it's a reality. You see it. You see it working in the church. It's always worked when Christians are willing to think this way again. uh, Well, actually, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, his second letter to the church in Corinth, second Corinthians. And uh, he was he was encouraging them uh, to uh, basically Put together a collection for the church in Jerusalem. This is decades later. And by then the church in Jerusalem was in a different situation. And they were on the poor end of things. And so Paul was encouraging different churches throughout the Greco-Roman world. To make some collections and send them to the church in Jerusalem. And as he was talking about that. This is what he said to the Corinthians. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul went on to tell them, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It says early in the passage that great grace was upon the community. And you see right here that grace is at the center of recognizing God's kindness to you and then paying that kindness forward to one another. Grace is at the center of it all. Grace liberates us from selfishness to become generous people As our heavenly father is generous. And we see in God's economy of grace. A cyclical pattern. When you have been changed by grace. And you know it. When you have seen the grace of God. Have its effect upon you. And you recognize it. Something begins to happen in your life. You become grateful. Because you see that you are who you are, not because of what you've done or deserve, but because of God's unmerited, undeserved favor and love upon you. And as you begin to comprehend that, it changes the way you think about who you are and you begin to become a grateful person. And as you become grateful, what happens? You become generous. You reciprocate. Not because God is compelling you to, right? Paul says that's not why. In your heart, you do what you believe God's called you to do. But he's liberated you from selfishness. And so now, as he's been gracious to you, you become generous to one another and to others. And what happens when you become generous to people? 
They are blessed, aren't they? And what happens when you see that they are blessed? You become blessed, don't you? Yes, and then what happens when you're blessed and when others are blessed? Everybody becomes grateful. And as a community of people become grateful, what happens? More generosity. More blessing. More gratitude. And it goes on and on and on. As long as grace is at the center, this continues and it develops, it deepens, and it strengthens. And the church becomes a visible expression of God's generosity and we begin to look very different than the rest of the world. And that is a witness. And that's what the people in Jerusalem were seeing in awe as the church began to grow. You'll see the cyclical pattern somewhere else in the New Testament. Paul was in prison and the church in Philippi sent him some support. They sent him some very generous support. People in prison, the state doesn't pay for everything. They need help. All right. And, and, and so here's a guy in prison and he was blessed by the church in Philippi. And he writes him a letter thanking them for their generosity to him. And in the middle of that letter, he said to them, I am well supplied. Having received, I'm shortening this because of time. He said to them, I'm well supplied having received the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now get this, Paul then says to them in turn, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Based on the grace of God, Christians are thankful Gratitude, which breeds generosity, which breeds blessing, which breeds more gratitude. And on and on it goes. Now, some observation, just a brief observation about how our politics in our society impacts our sense of generosity. I'm not going to get political. As a church, we don't get political. We're kind of in a national mess right now with everything that's going on the last couple of weeks. So I'm not going to say anything uh, political other than a very simple observation. It's my own personal observation. Okay. So you can kill the messenger if you don't like this. The conservative mindset in America presumes generosity. Meaning this, the conservative mindset, and this is a generalization, it assumes that if you give people the freedom to do what they want to do, they will be generous to one another. If you just leave people alone, they'll take care of one another. They'll be generous. I don't believe the Bible says that at all. If you leave people alone, the rich will oppress the poor. The haves will oppress the have-nots. Just read your history book. History book. Here's the thing, though. The liberal mindset in America, recognizing that, says we have to force people to be generous with one another. Since they're not going to be generous, we have to make them exercise generosity. The problem with forcing people to be nice to each other, have you ever been treated that way? It develops a contempt for leadership and authority, doesn't it? When you feel like you're being coerced to be nice. Now you can be a conservative. You can be a liberal. But I will say this. God is neither. And what God teaches us in his word. 
is that a thankful person is a generous person. That grace cultivates generosity. And if people are impacted by grace, it doesn't matter what their political views are. They're going to be generous because they see the generosity of God in their life. And so for the grace centered person, we don't need to worry about what they're going to do with their freedom because we know they're going to be generous because they see God's generosity. Yeah. Yeah. And we know we don't have to coerce them. Because they understand the grace of God. That's why it worked in the early church. The early church wasn't political. The New Testament is not political. The New Testament talks very little about politics. It didn't need to. The church didn't need politics. The church didn't need social action. Because the church understood grace. And living and sharing and giving by grace. Made it possible for them to be the community that they were. That's all I'll say about that. Um, now you have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, they appeared to be generous, but they weren't. They faked generosity. They faked it. They looked generous, but I guess Peter had discernment from God's spirit. He, he knew that they really weren't being generous. It wasn't sinful that they didn't give enough money. That's not the point. You didn't give enough money, zap. They didn't need to give anything. What what, what did Peter say in verse 4 of chapter 5? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What he's saying there is, you own the land when it belonged to you. Nobody was telling you to sell it. And when you sold it, The money was yours. Nobody was telling you to give away the money. The the issue isn't that they didn't give enough or give at all. It, It was sinful in God's eyes to act as though they had. That's the problem here. That they appeared like Barnabas and like the rest of the community to just take the full amount of the proceeds of what they had and just freely give it so that others could be blessed. They appeared to do what everybody else was doing. The issue is hypocrisy. It's not stinginess. It's the root of their stinginess. It's they presented one. They presented one. uh, Behavior. But in their hearts. They were holding back. Peter actually goes further than saying you're not just. You're not just deceiving us. You're you're deceiving God himself. You're not simply being dishonest to to us. You're being dishonest to God. And he said to uh, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So now Luke reveals that behind this couple's hypocrisy, they probably didn't even know this. But what was behind their hypocrisy was a satanic campaign. To undermine uh, the Holy Spirit's work. What you see beneath the surface is a spiritual attack. There was a spiritual attack when Peter and John were imprisoned by the Sanhedrin and threatened, right? Not to preach in Jesus' name. Well, now there's another spiritual attack, but it's not coming from the outside. Okay. Uh, the theologian Richard Lovelace, he studied revivals 
throughout history, in the Bible and throughout history. And based on his study, he said, when true works of the Spirit of God uh, come under threat, uh, uh, the spirit of darkness, the spiritual forces of darkness usually have, according to the Bible and according to history, three approaches of undermining a true work of God. Lovelace said one tactic is uh, Satan likes to destroy from the outside by persecution or by public accusations about leadership, right, about motives. But uh, another approach is to infiltrate the work by corruption, to corrupt it from the inside and give, reason, give people a reason to make accusations because there's something defective um, going on inside, some type of corruption. And the last one is basically to create a counterfeit revival that confuses Christians or alienates outsiders and people looking in. Satan has many tactics, um, and we see Peter calling Satan out here. Ah, okay, this is a threat, but it was from the inside. I really see what, what you see here taking place is hypocrisy in the early church, you have all of this open generosity. And then a couple comes along, and we don't know all the reasons. All we know is that they faked it. They presented a situation uh, not as it truly was. And Peter calls them out for their hypocrisy. And so God's frightening and decisive action on this couple when you look at the greater context of generosity in the early church, what you really see happening is the Holy Spirit smothering a seed of hypocrisy in the church. And it's very difficult to read. I don't like reading it. I didn't want to talk about it or preach on it. But you see the Spirit of God not only doing signs and wonders to make lame people walk, but you see the Spirit of God holding the purity of the church in check. Peter went on to say to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? That language is reminiscent of a place in Israel's history. Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're getting thirsty. They can't find water and they start to grumble and complain. Now they had seen God deliver them from slavery, judge the Egyptians led them out. Amazing signs and wonders, right? And yet, right after that, the people begin to complain, and they said at Massah in Exodus chapter 17, is the Lord among us or not? And that place is remembered for when the Israelites began to test God. And now Peter is saying to this couple, why have you decided to test the Lord in the midst of all the wonderful things that he's doing? Here's a couple, despite God's abundant generosity to the community and to them, who just doubted God enough to be untruthful, to put on a better face, to act as though they were better than they really were, to be afraid of, of giving and needing to hold on to some of it. And so I want to be careful in how I apply this because, the, again, the issue is not how much they gave. The issue is dishonesty. The issue was hypocrisy. 
They were faking their spirituality. They wanted Barnabas's reputation. They wanted people to like them. Like people like Barnabas. And so they were deceptive. To achieve that status. So are you taking God's grace and generosity for granted? Think of it that way. I'm not talking about giving and how much you give. That's, that's not the point. The point is, are you unaware of the goodness and generosity of your creator to you? Because I think that was the problem here. That's where the testing comes from. You're around it. You see the grace of God. It's happening all around you, but you don't, you don't get it. You're not willing to see it. You're, you're there. You're in the community, but, but you're disengaged from what's really taking place. Now, if that's you, I want to remind you. I want to remind you, or if you're not a Christian, I, I want to show you for the first time, maybe, okay, that God not only promotes generosity, And provides generously. But God promises. God promises to remain generous to us. I think quite often. I think quite often we struggle. Because we're just not fully buying in. To the grace of God. How sufficient God's grace is to take care of us. How sufficient God's love and favor upon us is. That we don't need to convince other people that we're good people. So let me remind you or tell you for the first time that God actually promises to remain generous. Here's here's another thing that Peter once said later on. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's so much in that. There's so much there that Peter said. I just want to say something briefly. God's generosity isn't conditional. It's not conditional upon your own generosity. It's just not. You don't have to pretend You don't have to pretend to us, to your neighbors, to the people you work with. You don't have to pretend to God. You don't have to pretend to be a good person, to be a generous person. You don't have to because Peter says right here, you've been adopted. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're an heir. Whatever you think is important in your life right now, right? The things we try and hold on to and keep and don't want to, and we start hoarding and don't want to be generous to one another. You're going to lose it anyway. Peter says there are things you'll never lose. There are things that are kept in, in heaven for you. And the reason you can't lose them is because God's holding on to them. It's your inheritance, but he's keeping it in heaven for you. And so the things that really matter, forgiveness, reconciliation with God and with one another, eternal life, peace, the things that you can't lose, you can't lose them because God's holding on to them for you. They're his inheritance for you. And so you don't have to hoard anything. Because God's keeping what you can't lose. And as a child of God, as an heir of God, his generosity is unconditional because he is your heavenly father. 
And even when you're selfish and even when you're stingy, God promises to be generous to his children. And if you're not his child, he offers to you the gift of adoption. He'll make you his child. So looking to Jesus is the cure to the hypocrisy of selfishness. Years ago, our family was, was gifted a beautiful piano. Uh, it, it, was refer, it was an old piano that was refurbished. It sounded beautiful. It looked beautiful. It still does. But we were gifted to it. Imagine a family of musicians, a husband and wife, musicians. At the time, I was a musician professionally. And we, didn't have, and we were teaching our children how to play the piano. We didn't have a piano. We had keyboards, which are great. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but we didn't have a piano. And, and we couldn't afford one, a good one. Um, and a family uh, said to us, we want you to have this. And we were blown away. And we're still blessed by their generosity. But they told us the reason they were doing it is because uh, when the wife was a little girl, her husband, her father was a pastor. And somebody blessed their family with a piano. And so decades later, she said, that meant so much to me and my family. We want you to have this piano. And I'm telling you, it, it was something that we, we couldn't have bought if we had saved for years. And, and, I, and the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, I couldn't really talk about this in our last church because they would have been embarrassed. <laughs> but they don't know this is happening. So the reason I bring it up is because when I look at that piano, I just can't be selfish. When I look at when I it's just an object, right? But but when I look at it, I, I can't be protective. I can't be possessive. I can't be ungrateful. Just looking at that thing, I start to feel thankful. And, and, and it encourages my ability to be generous, maybe with that instrument, but in many other ways in my life. And that's what I'm trying to say to you. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and see God's generosity to you. I mean, that's what Peter is really helping you to do here. You're made alive because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, because of his kindness to you. And we keep looking at Jesus. And we begin to understand the kindness of God. So you can say, even if you've earned something, it's all because of the grace of God. It's all because of the kindness of God. And you are free. To be generous. Because a generous person. Is a thankful person. A generous church. Is a thankful church. So. Um, let's just be a community. That. Rejoices in God's generosity to us. You know. A community that is grace centered. You know, and let's just be generous with one another. In every way. You know, time and effort and love and friendship. Um, if you don't own land on the island of Cyprus, that's okay. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> the point is, let's look to Jesus as a community and remember that God's been generous to us. And let's just ask God to make us a thankful people. Lord, we ask you to do just that, to make us thankful because of your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.